You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Good morning. Good to to see all of you uh, this morning. I want to talk to you today about the problem in your marriage. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, what problem? Our marriage is perfect, right? Or you're thinking, how does he know? Or you're thinking, I'm single. I'm off this morning. Take a nap. Or you're thinking, did I leave the stove on? (laughs) What I hope you'll see by the time we're done this morning is that every marriage shares the same fundamental problem. You married a sinner. And so did your spouse. Lori and I celebrated our 43rd anniversary last week. And uh, thank you. We, we agree that it's been the best 43 years of our life. But like every marriage, there's been some bumps in the road. We married when I was 30. And I was sure I would be a great husband. Because after all, I'd read all the books. I'd gone to all the conferences, I'd I'd led a ministry for eight years, and Lori was and and still is the most beautiful woman I've ever met. What could go wrong? And I was amazed after we got married how selfish and independent and stubborn and passive and and unable to communicate, and and the list goes on and on and on. If you haven't been with us, we're in a series we're calling, let's start from the beginning, on the first 11 chapters of Genesis because those chapters not only set up the rest of the story of the Bible, but answer a lot of the issues that uh, we struggle with today. And uh, right now we're we're talking about marriage. Uh, Last week, Jeff talked about marriage before the fall, before Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and how God created us different for one another's benefit, and also to be a picture of his relationship with us. And I get to talk about marriage after the fall, and uh, how sin changed the relationship between husband and wife. And... um, We're going to talk a lot about Genesis 3 in the coming weeks because the fall is one of the major chapters in the story of the Bible. But today, we're just going to focus on the impact that the fall had on the relationship between the man and the woman. And what I want you to see is the problem in our marriage is that our relationship with God is broken, and therefore we're broken, and therefore our relationship with each other is broken. Now, I know a lot of you are single, uh, have never married, or are divorced, or are widowed, and what I hope you'll see is that this is very relevant to you because the problems between husband and wife are just a microcosm of the problems we have in every relationship. So that's where we're going this morning. Let's pray, and then we'll jump into the scriptures. Father, thank you that you are our teacher, your You promise that your spirit will lead us into all truth. You wrote the Bible. 
and you're the only one that can properly interpret it, we pray that you will be our instructor today. And I pray for each one of us, you know us far better than we know ourselves. I pray that you will teach us what you want us to learn. Help us to hear your voice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The fundamental problem in every marriage is that we have a broken relationship with God. That we were created for God. But because of sin, that relationship was broken. And I, as we start in Genesis, I want you to look at, at the results of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God, which are, are listed in Genesis chapter 3. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Apparently, up to this point, Adam and Eve had a face-to-face -face relationship with their creator. As Jeff taught last week, uh, the Garden of Eden was the one place where earth and heaven intersected. And so they were comfortable in God's presence. They delighted in his love for, for them. When they heard him, they would go running to them to him, but now that's changed. And rather than running to God, they hide from God. They're avoiding God, right? And so for the first time, God has to seek Adam and Eve. Then the Lord God called to the man, and he said, where are you? Do you think that God didn't know where Adam was? I said, behind one of these trees here. No. The whole universe is laid bare before his sight. But God is making a point. God is, is underlining the fact that his relationship with, with these humans has changed. There's no longer a comfortable fellowship. There's an avoidance. Well, Adam realizes that hiding behind a tree can only work so long. And so... He answers, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. When we look more in depth at the fall, we'll see that when Adam and Eve disobeyed the only command that God gave them, and ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they suddenly became self-conscious and embarrassed. They realized they had no clothing on, and they hastily tried to create clothing out of leaves. Uh, that's why in the medieval pictures of the Garden of Eden, you see these fig leaves. But they try to hide, they try to cover up from each other, and they try to hide from God because they're suddenly ashamed of what they are. And we've inherited that nature, haven't we? we we're, we're ashamed. We, we, we cannot be transparent with each other. We certainly cannot be transparent with God. We, we try to hide ourselves. And, and this relationship with God is not only broken on the human side. It's, it's broken on God's side. If God created us to know him, why is he so hard for us to find? Well, Look what Isaiah 59 says. 
Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Bible teaches that God is holy, which means he's morally perfect. That he not only can't do evil, but he can't associate himself with evil. He is the opposite of evil. God is holy, we're not. And so our sins separate us from God. And so after the fall, there, there is a, a broken relationship between God and man. God cannot fellowship with man, which is why Adam and Eve have to leave the garden, and, and the way to return to it is blocked. They can never return because they're no longer holy. And uh, they want nothing to do with God. They're hostile towards God. They want to be their own God and eventually begin to create their own version of God and worship that. That's, that's the human condition. That's our fundamental problem in life. And the whole Bible is, of course, the story of how God solves that problem. I didn't come to Christ because I was intellectually convinced that Jesus was who he said he was. I already knew that. I didn't come to Christ because I didn't want God messing around in my life. I didn't want God interfering. I was afraid he had a plan for my life that wasn't my plan. And I preferred my plan. I inherited that same nature of Adam and Eve that all of us have. And we're separated from God on his side because of our sin, but on our side because of our anti-God nature. Does that make sense? And, and because our relationship with God is broken, we're broken. We're not the people God created us to be. Let's read on here. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? God gives Adam a chance to come clean. A chance to take responsibility for his actions. And Adam replies, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Now think about this. God creates man and woman to rule the world. To be his representatives here. To manage all of creation for him. To be responsible for the rest of creation. And after the fall, Adam can't even take responsibility for himself. Not my fault. It was that woman, by the way, you gave to me. Adam blames Eve and... By extension, he blames God. Adam is clearly not, no longer the man God created him to be, and neither is Eve. The, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The devil made me do it. It's not my fault. So because their relationship with God is broken, they're broken. And because they're broken, 
their relationship with each other is broken. And that comes out as God lists the results of the fall. Look at verse 16 first. To the woman, God said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. When Jeff spoke on work and how God created us to work, remember, after the fall, work became much more difficult and painful and dangerous than it was before the fall. Now, God says the same thing to the woman. Not only was she created to work like the man, she was created to be fruitful and multiply. And yet, in her role as giving birth, that labor process will become far more difficult and far more dangerous. Look at the rest of the verse. Yet, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, scholars have debated what this means for many years, and some of them say the desire there of the woman for her husband is sexual, that the idea is that even though childbirth will be painful, you will continue to sexually desire your husband, which would be a good thing because it guarantees the, the survival of the human race. I don't think that's what it means because that would be out of context with this whole passage. This whole passage is a passage of judgment, a passage of negative things that have occurred in the world because Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And I think what God is saying here is the relationship between the man and the woman will no longer be cooperative, but will be adversarial. And that comes from two words, the word desire and the word rule. Two rare Hebrew words. The Hebrew word that's used in verse 16 for desire is only found three, two other times in the scripture. And the most significant one comes in the next chapter in the story of Cain and Abel. God warns Cain that his anger against his brother, his jealousy against his brother, because remember, God accepts Abel's sacrifice but rejects Cain's, that he has to be careful of this growing anger against his brother. And look what he says. Did I put this verse in? Yeah, I did. No, no, I didn't. Gosh. Well, this is, this is why you shouldn't have old people for your pastor. <laughs> Genesis 4-7, God says to Cain, if you do well, you'll be accepted. This is not, your failure is not final here. This is just one sacrifice. You'll be able, you'll, there'll be other sacrifices. You'll be able to do fine. And you'll be accepted. But beware, sin is crouching at the door and its desire, same word, its desire is for you, but you must master it. And the Hebrew word for desire in that verse and in this verse, desire means a desire to control, a desire to master. In verse 7 of chapter 4, it is sin's desire to master Cain. In verse 16 of chapter 3, it is the woman's desire 
to master and control her husband. So that's why the English Standard Version translates verse 16, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The New Living Translation says, you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. So there's going to be conflict between the man and the woman. The other key word is the word rule here. This is a specific Hebrew word for rule. It means to rule harshly with power. So as a result of the fall, we have the beginning of the war of the sexes. That men and women will be in opposition to one another, which we've seen throughout history, haven't we? And, and frankly, men have gotten the best end of the deal. In most, most cultures, men rule the culture. Women are not allowed to own property or to vote or even sometimes to choose their own husbands, except on Paradise Island, where Wonder Woman was born. But most historians say there really hasn't been any matriarchies. It's been the man who has ruled harshly because of his power. And over the last 200 years in the West, women have made great progress, but we cannot say that the war of the sexes has changed at all, can we? So there's this, this conflict between men and women. And so, kind of to summarize here, our relationship with God is broken. As a result, we're broken. As a result, our relationship with our mate is broken. Here's why. When God ceases to be God in my life, who becomes my God? Me. My will be done. That's why Proverbs says, the ways of a man, all the ways of a man are right in his own sight. I'm right, you're wrong. And that's why there is conflict in every marriage because we think we're right and our mate is wrong and usually the one who wants it the most is the one who gets their way. Isn't that true? I heard a divorce attorney the other day and she said, in every case I've ever been involved in, each spouse blamed the other as the cause of the divorce. It was the woman you gave me. It was the man you gave me. I may have 10% of the blame, but she, he, is responsible for the other 90%. You see? Because we think we're right because our, we have fallen natures, because we're broken, because we no longer fear God. Uh, and that's why marriage counseling Couples counseling has very limited success. I, I have found, in, in, and my, my counseling is awful. I have, a, I have a steady rate of failures. But I find that when couples come to me for counseling, what they really want is they really want me to tell the other they're the one that's wrong. You know what I mean? They're, the, neither one of them really wants to change. They want the other person to change. You go to counseling. You're the one who needs it. And even when the couple is sincere, most couples counseling only helps them change their behavior. It can't help them change what they are. So you can learn better communication skills. You can learn to say things less sarcastically or confrontationally. You can work on 
developing the friendship and, as well as the romance. But what I found is most of those skills, those are great skills, but most of those skills are forgotten as soon as the crisis disappears and people go back to their old habits. So that's, that's why we have problems in our marriage. It's a spiritual problem. And there must, has to be a spiritual solution. So let's close in prayer. That's the end of today. <laughs> Fortunately, Genesis 3 also talks about the redemption of our marriage. And, and, and it's found, strangely enough, in God's judgment on the serpent. Remember, he has judged the man. He's judged the woman. Look what he says to the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent... Because you have done this, because you have deceived the man and the woman into rebelling against me, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Not only will there be a conflict between the man and the woman from now on. There'll be conflict between the woman and the serpent and between her seed and descendants and the devil's seed and descendants. This becomes one of the great themes that runs throughout the story of the Bible, which begins with the story of Cain and Abel, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks. The conflict between the children of God and the children of the devil. But there's another part of this. He, meaning one of her descendants, a son of Eve, shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And this is the first note of hope and sets up the story of the Bible, the rest of the story of the Bible. He is a coming human being who will defeat the serpent and restore everything that Adam and Eve lost by their rebellion. And as the story of the Bible progresses, we find more and more about this human being, this, this champion who will defeat the devil in individual combat, uh, where he will be born, when he will be born, his family line, the things he'll do. And of course, it's the Messiah, it's Jesus. And that's why Jesus says in John 5 that you search the scriptures because you think that in them there is life and they testify of me. The, the, the Bible is a rescue story. The hero of the Bible is Jesus. The Old Testament reveals the coming Savior. The New Testament, he, he saves us, he accomplishes. That's, that's the whole. So this is a very key moment that, that Jesus will restore everything Adam and Eve's lost. I think him crushing Satan's head refers to his crucifixion and resurrection where he makes all things new. And Satan wounding him on the heel is the crucifixion when Satan thought he had thwarted God's plan because God becomes a man to save us and, 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 and he never thought, he never even envisioned that God's plan could actually be to die for us. Does that make sense? So Jesus comes to undo, the son of Eve comes to undo all the mess that Adam and Eve put us in. So that when I put my faith in Jesus, 
that broken relationship with God is restored. All of my sins are forgiven because all were laid on Jesus who paid for them all. And God credits me with his perfect record of righteousness because I am now in union with him. It's as if I lived the perfect life he lived. And Jesus comes into me and the old me, the slave of sin, is killed and a new me a child of God is resurrected. I look the same on the outside, but I'm totally new on the inside. And he gives me a new heart, a heart that loves God and loves the things that God loves, goodness, righteousness, holiness, justice, and other people. Now, all that happens in a moment of time. The effects of it are realized over a lifetime as I find Christ working in my life, giving me the power and the desire to break all the old bad habits I developed as a slave of sin and replace them with the habits of Jesus. And that changes my relationship with God, it makes me a new person, and it changes my relationship with my mate. I want to close by giving you three very practical examples of how having this Son of Eve in our lives has changed our marriage. Okay? And then we're done. First of all, Jesus redeems our marriage by making us new people by becoming an umpire. He becomes the umpires are seldom popular. But boy, are they necessary, aren't they? Because think of a baseball game without an umpire. The pitcher believes every pitch is a strike. And the batter believes that every pitch is a ball. And they're sincere. And so if the batter doesn't swing and miss or doesn't hit the ball, there's an argument. And we'd never finish a game. But you know, it doesn't matter what the pitcher thinks. And it doesn't matter what the batter thinks. The umpire calls the balls and the strikes. Because we're fallen, I think I'm right. I sincerely believe I'm right. And Lori sincerely believes she's right. But I found that after we got married, that when I insisted on my own way, Jesus spoke to my conscience and said, you're not loving your wife. You're not putting her interests before your own. And so I went the other direction. And I just gave her her way all the time. And it was just easier that way. But Jesus wouldn't let me get away with that either. Because Jesus says, you don't understand yet. She's not the boss. You're not the boss. I'm the boss. Does that make sense? And you're not caring for and protecting your wife by always giving in. When Jenny was a baby, um, she had colic. And she screamed daily from 4 in the afternoon till 10 or 11 at night. And this went on for months. And when she finally cried herself to sleep, we would lay her in her little crib 
and then we would literally crawl across her bedroom floor because it creaked and she would wake up immediately. Didn't matter because as soon as we got into bed, she would start screaming and, and usually my dear wife was the one who would walk with her all night. This is screaming baby. And uh, this went on for months. And uh, finally, one night, same thing, we're in there and we get, just get to bed. We're we, of course, we're totally exhausted by this. And, and finally, Jenny starts to scream again. And I said to Lori, let's let her cry. Let's just see what happens, but let's let her cry. And this goes against, I can see my wife desperately needs rest, but this goes against all of her maternal instincts, which are to flee and go to her child and hold her. So we lay there looking at the ceiling for 30 minutes. And finally, Jenny stops crying. First, good night's, well, good night's sleep. We slept for three hours and then she started crying. But, but anyway, it was the first sleep we had gotten. It was an amazing thing. And, and then the next night, let's let her cry. And she cried for 20 minutes and then went to sleep. And the next night was for 15 minutes and went to sleep. And the next night it was for 10 minutes and that was her record. That was as far as she screamed every night for the first 10 minutes after we put her into bed until she was around 10 years old, I think. And then she stopped. <laughs> but, Now you're thinking, how did you know to tell your wife to do that? I didn't. I didn't. I was a first-time dad. I didn't know what to do. I just knew my life, my wife couldn't continue to live the life she was living. And I was responsible to care for her. And so I just made the best call I could at the time. And you know how a lot of the choices you make turn out to be great choices, and you look back and you say, that was God. God, who was at work within you, both the work and the will, his good pleasure. The point is, Jesus is the umpire. He tells us what to do. It's not my will, it's not her will. And the way we found that the, the more we submit ourselves to him, the happier we are together. Now, not only is he the Lord and umpire, he's also our example. When Lori and I were dating, I always wondered how I would know if we were really in love. Because a couple of times before, I thought I'd been in love. Um, but when those infatuation, giddy feelings disappeared, as they always do, I lost interest. It's a very immature, self-centered, feelings-oriented view of love. So I knew what love wasn't, but I didn't know what love was. How do I know if I really love this woman? And so I said, maybe I should just let the Bible define what love is rather than my feelings or my culture. So I, I read the very familiar passage of Ephesians 5, and let's read it. Husbands, love your wives. Notice love is a command. It's not a feeling. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, 
having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. Notice, Jesus loved us before we were beautiful. He made us beautiful because he loved us. And he loved us by laying down his life for us. Love is sacrifice. He gave up his life for us. So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. I am not infatuated with my body. In fact, as I get older and more spots appear and more wrinkles and more lumps and stuff, I am less infatuated with my body now than I've ever been in my life. But I still care about its welfare and its comfort. And so do you. Your body, I mean. Uh, <laughs> he who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. So love is sacrifice, and sacrificing myself for my wife, because her welfare is my welfare. Her happiness is my happiness. See what I mean? I can't be happy if she's not happy. I can't be well if she's not well. That's the idea. Just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. We read that last week in Genesis 2. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. When I read that, I realized that the desire of my heart was to devote the rest of my life to making my wife happy. And that's when I knew that I was in love with her, because I knew that kind of selfless love would not come from selfish me. That kind of love could only come from the Spirit of Christ living in me. So, so Jesus is not only the umpire, he's the example. He teaches us how to love. And we find the more we follow his example and love each other the way he loves us, the closer we get together. So he's the Lord and umpire. He is the example. Finally, he's our joy. He's our joy. Do you know why so many people are disappointed with their spouse? Because on the day they got married, they said, finally, this person is going to make me happy. And that is an unbearable burden to place on anyone. Because only one person can make us happy. And that is the God who created us for a relationship with him. Isn't that true? He's the only one who can satisfy us. He's the only one that can give us joy. Jesus says in John 6, he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. He is the only one that can satisfy us. He's the only one that can give us joy. And so if I'm mad or sad or irritated, it's not my wife's fault. That's not her job. It's my relationship with Christ that, that, that's, that I need to work on. And we find 
that the closer we get to him and the more we draw on him for our joy and our satisfaction, the happier we are with each other. That's why every problem in a marriage is essentially a spiritual problem. If you're married and Christ is in your life, and yet you're not satisfied with your marriage, here's my suggestion. Get your eyes off your mate. And put your eyes on Jesus and, and start spending regular time in his presence every day. Get yourself happy in Jesus. Don't just go through the motions, you know, a chapter a day keeps the devil away. Really read carefully, listen for his voice, pray, get close to him. Because you'll find as you become more and more contented in your relationship with him, strangely enough, you will become more and more contented in your relationship with your mate. If Christ is not in your life, you're only a prayer away. Jesus said in the last book of the Bible, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him or her and fellowship. Now, asking Christ into your life doesn't make you a Christian. Faith makes you a Christian. Believing that Jesus is who he says he is, he's the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the one who gave his life so that you could be forgiven, rose from the dead so that you could live forever and who comes into your life to change you and make you the person God created you to be. It's that faith. But that prayer is a way of expressing that faith. So you don't pray that prayer as kind of something to check off the bucket list. Okay, I asked Jesus into my life. That's done. It's more, I believe that Jesus can do what he says he can do. So Jesus, please do it. Please come into my life and make me the person you want me to be. And if you do, he promises, he who comes to me, I will in no way cast out. Let's pray. Father, thank you that in the midst of all of our problems, there is a solution. Thank you for sending Jesus to be our Savior. And I pray he'll become big and we'll become small. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.